All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us online, and thanks for joining us in person. And uh, we are beginning a new section of our study uh, with Truth for Living. Again, just a reminder, the children in the back are learning uh, about these same questions and answers that uh, we're learning out here. And the desire of these things, and, and particularly why we have one Wednesday in the evening where we sort of review what the kids are learning, is so that the families can discuss and talk about uh, these different things. And so we're jumping into a rather big subject uh, with this next section, and that is the subject of the Trinity. Um, this is the term Trinity. <clears throat> you won't find that actual term in Scripture. Uh, and so what it is, is it's a word that we use to describe the teaching of Scripture regarding the nature of God. Um, and so what we help, what's helpful for us to do is to discuss this, to talk about it, but more particularly to see how the Bible hashes out this concept of the Trinity. And so our first question sort of jumps right into this particular issue and this particular subject. What does the word Trinity mean in relation to God? What does the word Trinity mean in relation to God? So let me throw it out there. When you hear the word Trinity, what comes to your mind? What do you think of? Three in one, okay? Three in one. And the what? The fullness of God, okay? One God, three persons. Confusing, okay, that, that, yep, that, that's definitely a, uh, um, a reality as well with it because, and we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a second. Anything else that comes to your mind when you think of the word Trinity? I, I think sometimes, too, if we think about it, the word Trinity is, it's one of those Christianese words that sometimes you'll see, like there's Trinity Bible Church and Trinity Baptist Church, and it's sort of plastered on Christian um, organizations uh, and, and so we, we, I think, associate the idea of the Trinity with Christianity as well. We should. Um, but let's just answer the question here based upon what they gave us. And then we're going to look at some passages that help to establish the Bible's teaching of this concept of the Trinity. So the word Trinity describes God as one in three persons. All three are fully God. So this is, I think, is a nice, concise statement of what the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is. Um, we have how many gods? One God. How many persons in that one God? Three persons in that one God. And then all three of these individual persons in this singular God are fully God. There's an equality among all the persons. The Father is equal with the Son, and the Son is equal with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is equal with the Father, and the Holy Spirit is equal with the Son. And so there is this, this recognition that all three of them share in the divine, um, the divine uh, nature. And so I think to go to your point about this is confusing, I think Jeremiah is really helpful for us in understanding why we have a problem with this. Notice what Jeremiah says about God. There is none like you. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. One thing that is 
eminently clear in Scripture is how different God is from us. We talk about the fact that God is holy, and uh, we oftentimes relate that to the idea of of ethics or moral actions so that someone is holy in the sense that they they live their life in a set-apart way. They don't go into the sinful actions of the world, but rather they separate themselves from those things. And that certainly is a common theme of Scripture as what holiness is, uh, is involved with. But Holiness is more than just that moral, that moral attribute or the idea of, uh, of an ethical demand upon people to be holy. Holy simply means separate. And so in this very way, God's holiness is even seen in the fact that his very nature is separate from creation. Uh, this is something that is helpful for us to keep in mind because we are created we are bound by certain limitations by the very virtue of the fact that we are created. Um, what are some of those constant boundaries that we, are, that we are always going to be, even in eternity, that we're always going to be held to? Can someone think of so, what some of those boundaries are by our, by our very nature and that God is not bound by? Okay, death. So death comes as a consequence of sin. Death is something that we um, as human beings experience. For, for God to redeem humanity, he had to die. But in doing so, what did he have to do? He had to come in the flesh and be found as a man. Uh, and, and he died as a man. God in his divine nature did not die, but the human nature of Christ died. And that's Another confusing thing uh, that we'll talk about at some point. But so death is one sense that, we're, that we don't have. That. And when we think about death, we, there is a spiritual aspect of that. But in particular, we often think of death as a, as a physical uh, event, something that happens physically to us. It's something that we experience. There's physical death all around us. Um, you know, you, you try to bring up a plant you know, raise the plant, that sounds weird, raise a plant or whatever, but grow a plant and uh, you don't feed it, you don't give it what it needs, and what happens to the plant? It dies. There's a physical limitation there. Does God have any physical limitations? No, the scriptures say that God is a spirit. And so the, his very nature is such that he, doesn't, he is not bound by the limitations of physicality, as we are. And so that helps us, I think, to some extent, because when we talk about um, we, when we talk about the essence of something, we often think of it in regards to physicality. So the idea that one thing can also be three, that's a physical barrier that our minds really can't overcome. What other particular aspects does God is God not bound by? Time. So, so when did God begin? Always. Or he didn't. He never had a beginning. When will God end? He never will end. Um, and so, so there's, there's a, an aspect that he exists outside of time. He exists outside of the physical universe or outside of space. In fact, he's the one who brought those things into existence. And so we are material. We, although we have a spiritual side to us, we are a living soul. Nonetheless, we're still bound by that physical boundary and we're bound by the boundary of time. God is not like us. And that's the point that Jared is making. There's none like you. 
And in particular, one of the things that Jeremiah focuses on and seeks to, seeks to uh, lay the acts of God's word at the root of a problem within Israel, within the nations, is the idea of idolatry. Where do idolatries come, where do idols come from? From us. We create the idols. And so they, these idols are bound even more to our particular boundaries because we have created them. But God is not that way. His name is great in power. There's, there, the idea there is there's no one in their right mind who would not fear him. He's the king of all the nations. Um, this is his due. It's not just a simple matter of the fact that he has earned this, but by his very nature, he deserves this glory and honor, that he is greater than all the wise ones of the nations and in all the kingdoms, that the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the best that humanity can provide is far and away inferior to who our God is. And so this helps us, I think, to at least understand the difficulty of this confusing idea that God is three and one. Now let's talk a little bit more in detail about does the Bible actually support this idea that God is three and yet one? And I want us to talk about what is the Trinity. Now we have to recognize that the religion of the Bible, the, the, the way that the Bible describes God in both Testaments, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's what we call monotheistic. All right? Mono means one and theism means God. So there is one God. And both Testaments bring that about. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to jump right to a New Testament text that Jesus quotes as he's quoting the Old Testament text. Um, remember the, the story of the man who came, comes to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment in the, in the law? And what's Jesus' response? What's the greatest commandment in the law? Lo love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the question. Why should we love God? And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy, and there in Deuteronomy, there is, this is from Deuteronomy 6.4, before that command is even given, Moses says to Israel, the, the most important um, commandment, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. Christ, in quoting from Deuteronomy 6.4, points to what is perhaps considered in some respects the most important passage of Scripture because it describes what the duty of mankind is. And that duty is based upon the fact that God is one. The primary duty or purpose of humanity is to love God and love others. But we must know who and what is the God that we're to love. Now this is extremely important because when he says love God and this is the God you love, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what does that immediately discount as a possibility for religious activity? Polytheism, the idea of many gods. What's, what's the first commandment in the Ten Commandments? You shall what? Have no other gods besides me. Why? why? Why is that so important? Because there's only how many gods? One. There's only one God. And that's why it's led with in the commandments. 
Because our desire, our, our goal as humanity is to worship God. Now, every other system of religious belief, almost every other system of religious belief, apart from the religion of the Bible, holds to some form of polytheism. Whether it be the ancient gods of the nations that Israel went into, the Canaanites, they were filled with a number of gods. If the, 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 the Israelites came out of what nation before they went into Canaan? Where did they come out of? Egypt. Egypt had tons of gods that they would worship. Um, if we were to look at the ancient gods of Canaan, or if we were to look at the thousands of gods that you find in, um, in Hinduism, uh, the ascension of ourselves to godlike status in Buddhism, or the pluralism of the society we live in today that says there are many ways, right, to God. Um, in positing that there is only one God, monotheism cuts against all of those things. It is unique, and it is yet the God who is. If there is only one God, then when you are worshiping another God, what are you worshiping? Huh? An idol. And what is that idol? Nothing. It doesn't exist. How many gods are there? One God. And to worship anything else but that one God is to worship something that truly doesn't exist. And if there is only one God, then that God and that God alone has the absolute right to determine how we can relate to him. If there's only one God, then his revelation, how he presents himself, is what truly matters. And this really gets us to the point of why we want to be a Bible-based group of believers. Because God speaks uniformly through his word, through the word of God that is given. Now, how does Israel do with this command to worship only one God? If we look at Israel's history, how do they do? Do they do, they do that well or do they do that poorly? Very poorly. In fact, Jeremiah makes this statement in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods? And then notice what he says here. Even though they are what? Not gods. And then he gives this indictment to Israel, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Jeremiah is actually being intensely practical here, and he's saying it's stupid, it's folly, it's idiocy to worship any other God because they don't exist. And so all your worship, all your activities, everything you do to this God that doesn't exist, it's not going to profit you at all because the God cannot profit you. We see this again in Jeremiah 16, 19 through 20. O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but what? Lies. Worthless things in which there is no profit. Can man make for himself gods? Such are not gods. Reality is that idolatry is excluded. Idolatry is foolishness. Idolatry is such an affront to who God is because there is only one God. When you take away the scriptural teaching of monotheism, you gut everything 
out of what it means to be a Christian. You gut the scriptures of the very impact that it has. And it leaves you with no other alternative but to believe in many gods. And what does the Bible say about that? They don't exist. It's folly to follow them. Unless we think that this is only an Old Testament emphasis, the Apostle Paul brings this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's talking particularly about food offered to idols. And, and this is a complicated passage and, and where we talk about how our own standards and relationship to other believers, uh, how that works out, and, and uh, particularly how we need to be guided by our consciences and things that are not specifically said in Scripture. But Paul makes this statement about the eating of food offered to idols. And he says this, he says, We know that an idol has no real what? Existence. Idols aren't real. Why? There is no God but one. Paul actually grounds the argument that he's going to make about food offered to idols in the fact that there is one God. Because if food is offered to an idol, to something else that other people are worshiping, Paul's conclusion is ultimately, what is that food offered to? Nothing. It doesn't exist. He goes, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth... As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. One God. And Paul again emphasizes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think what's important to note about what Paul is saying here is that there is no other God but the one God and that he is over everything. There's no area, there's no, there's no part of this universe, there's, there's no far off reach in this world or far off reach Beyond the galaxies of the Milky Way, no place exists where God is not the only God that is. There is but one God who is over all and through all and in all. And what that means then is it is the responsibility of every single person on the face of the planet to worship this one God. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, 29 through 30. Is God the God of the Jews only? It's an interesting question. And in particular, Paul is, is following this up as he makes his argument in Romans about the necessity to come to Christ and to find salvation by faith in him alone. To do that first, though, he has to indict all of humanity. And so in Romans chapter 1, we see him describing the condition of mankind after the fall and how sin corrupts everything. And then he comes to Romans chapter 2, and, and there is this objection that might be raised by the Jewish people in Rome, saying, well, I'm a Jew. Maybe I'm special because I'm a Jew. And he goes in and indicts them and says, no, you're also, in fact, you're, you're, you're doubly accountable to God because God has revealed himself to you. But the reality is that he draws to a conclusion in Romans chapter 3 is God is not just the God of the Jews only. 
He's also not just the God of the Gentiles. He's the God of both. Why? Since God is what? One. There's only one God. This flies in the face of the pluralism of our day. The world in which we live today wants to say that there are many ways or many expressions that you can go and find God through many different avenues and that even worship to many other different gods may be acceptable. And there are Christians that will say this. And yet Paul here is abundantly clear. We must come to the only God who is. We must come to the God who has revealed himself in his word. And to do otherwise is to only seek folly. God is the only one God. So I think we can, there, there's many other places we could go to to establish this. But throughout both Testaments, Old and New, the religion of the Bible declares that, that it is monotheistic. There is one God. So that's it, right? We should be done. But yet the Bible also describes three persons as being one God. Now, when, when, we, when we come to this idea that the Bible says one thing, but then it says something else that seems contradictory, what do we do in those instances? Because from our perspective, is it possible for something to be both singular and plural? Is that possible from our perspective? No, it's not possible. But yet the Bible teaches one God, and yet we're going to see the Bible refers to three different people as God. So what are we to do in those circumstances? Is the Bible nonsensical? I mean, is, is the Bible just sort of speaking out of both sides of its mouth? Is, is, should we just discard it because we don't understand it? That's where I think coming back to that verse that we began with, understanding that God is going to be so great, so far, so different than us, that we have to be content with tension and mystery in the things that he says in his word. Now, let's establish that, God, that the scriptures refer to three different individual persons as God. The first one is pretty easy because we've already read some verses that talk about this. The Father is God. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. And so Paul is using God and Father interchangeably in this passage so that so that when he refers to the Father, he's referring to God. We can see this throughout the scriptures, particularly in the life of Jesus. How did Jesus refer to God? He called him what? Father. He called him the Father. And so there is a very clear indication throughout scripture that the Father is God. But then, as we've talked about, there is his Son. And the Son is God. Um, where, where would we often, I think, go to to describe or to realize that God, that, that Christ is God? I think there's one passage that sort of stands out among, the, among most of them in the Gospel of John. Okay, those are great ones. <laughs> that, uh, but let's think even at the very beginning of John's Gospel. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. Right, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, so that passage, I think, is used so often, and it's interesting because it's one of the passages that is often attacked by, um, uh, I believe it's Jehovah's, huh? Right, they make, it, they make it so that he's a little, or he was a God. So in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And on first look at that passage, understanding the underlying Greek, it lacks what we call the definite article. And so instead of it saying, and the, and the Word was the God, it could be translated the Word was a God. Now there's a Greek grammar rule that uh, is consistent across um, both the grammar of the New Testament and other uh, Greek language that when, and I'm not going to get into all the technicalities of it, but essentially the, the definite article is transferred from another, um, another noun to that noun because of the use of a linking verb. And if you don't understand what that is, that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's sort of complicated, but it's what's called the Granville Sharp rule of Greek grammar. But I would say we don't even need to, I don't even need to, to discuss that. Because elsewhere, as we've said, I and the Father are one. No one comes to the Father but by me. In John 1.14, John explicitly says that the word that became flesh is God. Notice what he says in John 1.14. For from his, that the his being the word made flesh, Christ, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through. Now he makes it abundantly clear. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God. And then he says, the only, what? God, who is out the Father's right hand, he has made him known. There is no question in this passage that John is making a clear statement that the Son is God. Because no one comes to the Father but through Christ. He is the one who describes and translates and interprets the Father to us. And how was he able to do that? Because he himself is God. There's even a logical argument to be made here. If God is so different from us, would it be possible for us as human beings to, to truly explain him to other human beings? Because no, we still have those same limitations. We need somebody who is not limited by the limitations of humanity to explain God. And we have that in the Son who is God. So the Father is God. The Son is God. But again, we're talking about the Trinity. What's the third person of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit. And this one, I think, of, of all the... Uh, all the persons of the Trinity, this is the one that is often the most attacked. The Bible never anywhere says that, um, that the Spirit is God. I've heard that said. I've also heard things said that, well, we have a spirit, right? I mean, the Scripture describes humans as having a spirit. So when it talks about the Spirit of God, it's referring to it in the same sense that we have a spirit. And after all, we're made in God's image, right? Um, so is the Spirit... God. And I think probably one of the clearest explanations or demonstrations of this is in Acts chapter 5 with the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. We know the story of Ananias and Sapphira. 
They were, the church was growing. There was this movement among the church for them to share their goods and their resources together. And so Ananias and Sapphira sold some land and they made a promise to God saying, the proceeds that we get from this sale, we're going to give to the church. There was nothing that Peter didn't come to them and say, you have to give this. It was a a statement, an oath that they made out of a free will desire to please the Lord. And that was a great desire and thing in that moment. But here's the thing. They sold the stuff and then what did they do? They held back part of it. They didn't keep their promise to God. Now remember who they are making this promise to, to God. And so... Ananias comes in, and, and the, the, it's on the Lord's Day. They're, they're there to uh, worship the Lord. He comes in. He gives this gift, and, and Peter knows that they've held something back. And notice what Peter says in Acts chapter 5. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to who? He doesn't say the Holy Spirit. Who has he lied to? To God. And so in the same breath, Peter says both Ananias is lying to the Holy Spirit, and in the same lie that he's made to God, he's lying to God. So it's a very clear indication, I think, from these passages, and there are many, many others. We could spend ages going through and and surveying the Scripture that describes the fact that God is three in one. And I think this this helpful um, image helps us to understand this is a classic image that describes what we call the Trinity. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit. So that there is unity and singularity in deity, but difference in in the persons of God. Is this, is this a helpful image for you to sort of understand how these things, at least what the scripture says about these things? Now, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that have often been accused or some of the things that people can slip into regarding these things. The first is that there are not three gods, what we call tritheism. There are some people who would say, well, Maybe the scriptures are presenting the fact that we have three gods. God the Father is a separate God. God the Son is a separate God. And God the Holy Spirit is a separate God. We call tritheism. And what they want to do is they want to elevate each person of the Trinity to be a part of a a separate deity. But again, what have we read? What, What was that in Deuteronomy Uh, And what Jesus quoted, how many gods does the scripture say there are? One. There's one God. So we cannot have this idea that that there are three gods. We also have to recognize that this one God does not merely present himself in three forms. And this is an old heresy known as modalism. So, um, I think the 
best way to describe modalism today is to talk about personalities, all right? Um, I'm sure that your personalities with, like you, you have different, different personalities with different type of pe different people. Um, you, the way that you act or your personality towards your close family is going to be different than your personality with those who are outside of your family. Your personality with those in your work are going to be a little bit different. The way you relate to them is going to be different just because of the nature of those relationships. And so some people have brought out this idea that each individual of the Trinity is God displaying himself in a particular personality or in a particular way. So that when it speaks of God the Father, it speaks of him as a loving, caring, guiding individual. When it speaks of him as God the Son, it refers to him who, who comes to meet with us in our humanity and, and seeks, to, um, seeks to relate to us in that particular idea. When he speaks of his spirit, it speaks of how God comes and deals with us in a spiritual sense. Um, but that is not what the scriptures describe. They describe these individuals as having their own particular functions and their own particular um, actions apart from the other members. So, for instance, who is it that chose us before the foundation of the world to be, God, to be his people? The Father. Who is it that died on the cross for our sins? The Son. The it, so it is appropriate to say that God redeemed mankind on the cross. It is not appropriate to say that the Father redeemed mankind on the cross because it was the Son who did that. Or in the same way, who is it that gives us gifts to, to minister among God's people? The Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit. All right? Now, he's sent by the Father and he's sent by the Son, but it's the Spirit who gives those gifts. It's not correct to say that the Father is the one who gives those gifts because the Spirit is the one who is particularly pointed in that. And so there's a difference in their functions and in the different ways that they work out those things. This idea of modalism is most, most clearly seen in a modern work today uh, that was a very popular book and it was turned into a movie. Have any of you heard of the book or the movie The Shack? Right. Does anyone, there's, there's a book called The Shack, there's a movie called The Shack, anyone heard of that? Okay. So one of the, one of the criticisms that's been, and I'll be honest, I haven't actually read the book completely. Um, huh? Yeah, Oprah's in it. There, there's, a, there's a good warning sign right there that Oprah's in it. Um, but but what, what what the way that it is there is that each individual of the Trinity is an expression of one God rather than a separate person of God. And, and that's, that's modalism. You'll, you'll find this even today in some quote-unquote Christian groups that deny the idea of the individual persons of the Trinity um, as well. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind is that each person, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are fully God and are equal in their essence as God. So it's not that the Father is more God than the Son is more God. They both are equally God. And the Spirit is not more or, or less God than the Son or the Father. Now they have different distinct roles, different distinct um, uh, responsibilities in God's plan of salvation. But the scriptures clearly describe them all as having the full essence of who God is.
So, it's a lot to cover. Just to come back to our question, what does the word Trinity mean in relation to God? The word Trinity describes God as one in three persons. All three are fully God. And again, Jeremiah 10, 6 through 7. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Now, I wanted to quickly talk about something that's often used when we talk about the Trinity, and that is the analogies that are often made. So what are some analogies or examples in this world that you've maybe heard of used to describe the Trinity? Water and an egg. All right, so you said egg, you said water. So Ben, tell me how water describes the Trinity. Okay, liquid, solid, or a gas. All right. Okay. Right. So. Right. Okay. Um, I've also heard the idea of water used as the fact that water is two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. So three and one. Two. We have three chemical elements combining together to make one el- one water. Here's the problem with, with both of those. Well, with, with at least the way that you had mentioned it. What, what has to happen to water for it to, to, to not be like, like let's say it's a liquid. What has to happen to it for it to, to be different? It has to what? Okay, but it has to change. Does God ever change? And in his, in his divinity... In, in who he is, he doesn't change to become the Father or to become the Son. He, he is always God, and he is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's, I understand the usefulness of it, but it breaks down because it doesn't truly apply to how God is. God does not change. He doesn't change. He doesn't somehow put on his hat of being the Son or put on his hat of being the Father. The egg, what does the egg all right, shell, white, yolk. All right, you've got the shell, the white, and the yolk that all make one egg. Um, here's the problem with that. Um, the shell is a part of the egg, right? The white is a part of the egg. The yolk is a part of the egg. Is the father a part of God? No. Is the son or the spirit a part of God? No, they're, they're all completely of the same essence. So when, when we talk about God, we talk about him as, as what we call a simple being. He's not complex. And what we mean by that is not to say that he's beyond or he's complex in understanding, but the fact that he's not made up of parts. He doesn't have individual parts that work together. He is all one. And so the egg breaks down uh, from, from that perspective because God is not made up of parts like an egg is made up of parts. Okay. Right. Right. 
So, so Paul clearly describes the different roles that each individual person has in salvation, in, in salvation or I mean, in, in, any, in, in any number of different things. But, but, but we also have to recognize that they are com- all completely united so that, again, we can say God chose, we can say the Father chose, but it's not, it's not correct to say that the Son chose. Because, because of the way that, that that works out. Although we do also have other passages that, that do refer to the son making or being involved in that decision as well. But in other words, there is a, a unity in their essence of, of divinity, but there is a division in their actions in their, person, in their persons. Not in their personalities, in their persons. Um, now, a lot of this you like... What, what we have to be very careful with, and this is something that comes about in theology, is you have to be use precise language. Because, and the Bible does this. The Bible uses precise language to make sure that we don't misrepresent what we're saying. So you can say in each of the personalities of God, but that's incorrect because God doesn't have personalities. God has persons. And so we have to be very careful about the way that we describe those things. Well, they're, they're all what do you mean? Right. So. Right. So God. So what, what we. What we can say about that is that God does in the scripture use masculine pronouns. But God does not. Apart from Christ coming as a human male. God does not have a gender. So we, we have to be careful with that because he's not like us. He doesn't have a gender in the same way that we have genders, all right? Um, so we, we have to keep that in mind, but you're right. He does always represent himself in masculine pronouns in Scripture. Yes? Right. Right. Maybe. I, I, I could allow for that, but I think, I think what we have to recognize is that, that God relates to us. Use, there's, I'm going to use a really big term. God relates to us in what's called, um, and I'm probably going to not pronounce it correctly, uh, phenomenological language. So what that means is he speaks to us in ways that we can understand. So, for instance, um, does God have a right hand? Do this... Do the scriptures describe him having a right hand? Yes. So God, God doesn't have a right hand. So he, he does that so that we can understand what he's doing. And so in that same sense, when he uses um, gendered language to refer to himself in a masculine and he does, and the Bible is very clear, there's, there are movements to try to, to try to pull away that from translations. That is the, the underlying languages clearly 
state that God represents himself as a male or uses masculine, um, masculine pronouns or masculine, refers to himself in the masculine sense. But that is phenomenological language as opposed to what his true essence is. Um, and we have to remember as well, when he created, he said, let us make man in our image. And so God made man in his image, male and female, he created them. So that there is a way in which the image of God is more, most clearly expressed in both male and female. So we have to keep that in mind as well. But, but so please understand, I am not trying to argue that, that we should be referring to God as an it or in those type of senses, because he refers to himself in masculine senses in scripture. But he, his gender is not the same in the same way, sense that we view gender from that perspective. Does that make sense? And again, that's what the Bible says doesn't make sense. I don't know, because <laughs> it, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around these different things. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and sometimes it's hard for us to follow too because like when when you go to when you go to like Colossians or you go to Hebrews Colossians one or Hebrews chapter one it, it talks about how everything that was created was created by the Son. But yet we also see that God is the one who created all things, what we see in Genesis chapter 1. So there, there is a, a specificity of person in certain actions, but there is an understanding that the entirety or the essence of God is used in these things. Okay, who do we, who do we pray to? So that's a, that's a good question. And um, the scriptures bear out for us that we are primarily to come to the Father, through the Son, by the aid of the Spirit. But that does not mean that it's, not, that it's inappropriate to pray to the Son or to pray to the Holy Spirit. In fact, I remember sitting in a conference that uh, Sinclair Ferguson was speaking at, and he talked about that we fail to recognize the divinity of the Spirit and the fact that we don't pray to Him. Uh, at times, and so it was a it was it was a hard thing to think about. But what but what we do see Scripture clearly defining is, is prayers are directed to the Father. What does Jesus say in the ser- in the Sermon on the Mount when he gives us an example prayer? We pray our Father. So we're praying to the Father. The Scriptures also describe who is our mediator, who intercedes for us before the Father, the Son. He is gone. He is at the Father's right hand. He ever lives to make intercession for us. But then also, as we pray, we don't know how to pray as we ought. So who helps us in our prayers? Romans chapter 8. The Spirit helps us and he intercedes before us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So we pray, I think the primary focus of Scripture, we pray to the Father through the mediation of the Son, aided by the Holy Spirit. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's not appropriate to pray to the Spirit or to pray directly to the Son or to pray to the Father. Yeah. Phenomenological. I'm, I'm probably not pronouncing it correctly, but yes. Yeah. 
Yes. Right. Right. So, so I think part, part of that is to understand that God's, when the Bible describes God's emotions, all right, we, we have this idea that, that God is impassable. There's a doctrine called the impassibility of God. And what that means is because God doesn't change, right, well, the scriptures are very clear, God doesn't change, that refers to the whole essence of who he is. So we change all the time, all right? We can be really happy at times, right? And then we can be really sad at times. And so for there to be a flux and a movement of emotion requires some level of change within us. But God never changes. So he doesn't have emotions in the same way that we have emotions. However, he does always consistently react to sin. He does always consistently react to rebellion by his creation in ways that are described in anger. Or Jesus, when he comes uh, and sees Jerusalem that has, has rebelled against him over and over again, he mourns over their rebellion. So that now, in one sense, he was a, he was a man at that point, and so he is, he is genuinely experiencing human emotions because he's come in the flesh. But nonetheless, there are passages that describe God mourning and, and, and desiring for his people to, to turn from their sins. So that phenomenological language, I think, is employed there to help us understand that, that the, the offense that our sins are to God so that we can have at least some, some level of understanding of where he's at. But we have to recognize he does not feel or his emotions do not change in the same way that our emotions change. Um, this, and I think one of the best examples of this is what goes on with, the, uh, with Saul. And how God says that he is repenting of making Saul king. And like, well, he doesn't change it. God never changes his mind. He doesn't change it all. So how can he repent of making Saul king? And what we find is Samuel goes through that passage. And we see, we see in that passage both things being said. God changed his mind about making Saul king. God never changes his mind. So what is, like, Samuel wasn't an idiot. He's not saying two contradictory things. But then he goes on and describes it and says, the Lord is not a man to change his mind, like men change their mind. So that, so that when we see that language being used there, he's relating what he's done, but he's doing that in such a way to show that we can relate to him, but that's not the true essence of who he is. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Sorry, I hope that wasn't too wordy of, a, of an explanation. And it's, it's, again, part of it, again, comes back to this passage. There's no one like God. And so if, if, we think, if we think that we're going to fully understand this infinite being, we have a real problem with haughtiness and pride. Right? Part, of, part of our wrestling through these doctrines is to bring us to a level of humility that I'm not going to understand all the things about God. And, and God is an infinite being. And as I've mentioned before, how much time does it take to know an infinite being? An infinite amount of time. And, and that's why Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only Father in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, the Trinity. This is going to be a fun ride, I can already tell. Um, and it, there, there are going to be things that we're not going to understand about this. And that's okay. Um, we can stand certain on what the Word of God says, 
and then, and then when we don't understand something, wait until eternity when we may not even understand it at that point as well. Because we will then clearly see God for who he is. We'll see ourselves for who we are, and we will fall at his feet and glorify and praise him forever. Well, the, so the, the, the things that are written to, to right, but there, but there are even things in the things that are written that, that are still the secrets of God that we can't fully understand. So there, we have to recognize this is, a, this is a book that describes a spiritual being using physical language, and there's going to be a level of, of, of limitation to that so that there are going to be things in Scripture that are described that we're not going to fully understand. It, and so what we have to do is we have to just take at faith, this is what the Bible says. And if I don't fully understand it, that's okay. And I may never, I may spend all of eternity and I may still not understand it, and that's okay. And frankly, if you, if you have a God that you fully understand, you don't have the one God that exists. You have a God of your own imagination. All right, this has been good. I love the discussion. Good stuff. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us, and thank you, Lord, for your word that speaks so clearly uh, of who you are. And Father, even though you describe yourself in ways that uh, we cannot fully comprehend or understand, uh, through your spirit, increase our faith so that we can recognize and trust and rest in who you are. We pray all these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.